todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Tim Polcat, who's best known to music fans for his late 70s neo-rockabilly band, The Polcats. I became aware of them through a song called Make a Circuit with Me, which was on MTV all the time. I got to see them perform a couple of times, and one of the coolest shows for me was at the 2012 Las Vegas Rockabilly Weekend. The Ventures also played that year, and since Tim is a fan of The Ventures and an incredibly knowledgeable music historian, I asked him to be in my documentary, Stars on Guitars, which you can watch on just about every streaming platform right now. But I knew Tim way before that, and since I've always enjoyed hearing about his wide-ranging interest in endeavors, I think you will too. So let's get him on the line. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, Tim. Thank you. I love, love being here. Well, I would love for you to set the scene kind of for what music looked and sounded like when you formed the Polecats, um, and also who were some of your influences and what was the impetus for starting a rockabilly group in particular? It started, it started over a couple of years, actually. When we very first started, it was in 1975, so it goes kind of predates punk and a bunch of other stuff. Ah, okay. Um, but I was only twelve, so we kind of we kind of had to learn to play, and it was with my friends from the Scouts. And uh, we, the stuff that we were playing when we first learned was a mix between stuff that was in the charts and fifties uh, records. But the original drummers' brothers were Teddy Boys, and they would come up with these rare fifties records, and uh, these other bands that were um, older Teddy Boys that were playing kind of fifties rockabilly, but in a modern way. And so we listened to that, and that's kind of how we learned to play. We were listening to, you know, the glam stuff in the charts, not really the pop music, but, you know, stuff like T-Rex and David Bowie and um, and then old records like Gene Vincent and some of the rare rockabilly records that were unreleased in the 50s. And then we made our own conglomeration from that, and that's how we learned to play, uh, although we were very – we were kids, you know. We, yeah, well, 12 is awfully young to – 
take the initiative to start a band that was I would it's, think a little unusual it's not easy I mean you have first of all you have to get a guitar and then you have to you know, get an amp and then you know practice in your bedroom for hours on the edge of the bed and it was in the 70s in England and it was it was kind of a grim time I mean there was there was two two and a half tv channels one radio station um and it was the time in the it was there was it was, it was a depressing time. There was piles of rubbish everywhere. It was very black and white. It seemed to be always cold and wet, even in the summer. And uh, and it was during the the strike, so you never knew when the electricity was just going to go off. And you'd sit there reading a comic book by candlelight or torchlight. Oh my goodness! A little depressing, but that made you concentrate on something. You know, there was no distractions. I remember learning to play, and it was literally sat down and did that every single day after school. I'd, play guitar and play guitar until my fingers were sore it was a little bit different from from these days yeah and, then, and were your parents uh encouraging of that yeah I mean uh they didn't discourage me my dad was a semi-professional motorcyclist and it was either a guitar or a motorcycle and I reckon he figured the uh, guitar was a lot safer so so you know they encouraged me they didn't discourage me you know and they helped me buy my equipment you know I was only a, only a kid I couldn't go out and work so, yeah, so, the, so during the 1975 and 1976, we were kind of coming up with our own ideas and and learning how to play and doing covers and kind of writing songs. And then the end of 1976, beginning of 1977, punk rock came along. And that, although that was kind of opposed to what we were doing, I know the early punks and teddy boys were kind of enemies at the time. We were very influenced by it because it seemed like, the other kind of music was a little out of our reach. We didn't we didn't like Emerson Lake and Palmer and the long haired flares wearing prog rock brands mm -hmm. playing stadiums and uh, we couldn't afford to go and see those concerts. And punk was very accessible, and the people playing it had obviously just learned to play. Although they were really good and they had great ideas, they were you know they played very basically. I mean, mm -hmm. patterned on the Stooges and the Ramones and garage rock. And it was definitely a few chords, one bass note and one drum beat and you're off, you know, just put your own spin on it. And we liked that. And they were very DIY and it was very young and it annoyed your parents, not particularly my parents, but it annoyed parents and teachers, especially when the sex pistols were on the Bill Grundy show, effing and blinding. That was brilliant. That was, that was a, you know, I was with them for that. Wow. That was great just to put a, uh, shot up the system but it's tame now but uh, at the time it was literally the world changed the day that they used you know foul language on uh, primetime television now the polk cat's first hit song was a cover of david bowie's john i'm only dancing um what was it about that tune in particular that made you guys want to put your own spin on it well although we're a rockabilly band we'd like to it's now been labelled neo rockabilly, which was, you know, taking the instrumentation influences of the fifties raw rockabilly, with other elements, you know, like the energy of punk. But we also, we liked the we liked T Rex and Bowie and stuff like that. We wanted to, not just do a cover version or one of our own songs. We wanted to do something that would kind of get people's attention and, mm. and make a statement. To be honest, John Amoni Dancing wasn't our first choice. We were going to do Do the Strand by Roxy Music. <laughs> we, oh, I love Roxy Music. Yeah, that would have been cool too. I have to be honest, we could at the time we couldn't figure out how to play it. It was just it didn't sound any good. 
but John Amani dancing is a very the beginning wherever he lifted that from definitely it's the same exact same intro as crazy little thing called love by queen which is a kind mm-hmm. of a 50 song wherever bowie lifted that intro from it was definitely rockabilly so we had it from the intro and then then you know it was it actually lent itself quite nicely to to our style once with a little bit of adaptation and it was although it's a bit more musically complicated than a lot of rockabilly songs you know it worked uh, I still don't totally understand the lyrics. I've been told it's about you know a transvestite love affair, but everyone puts their own spin on it. Huh. Uh, a lot of people think that we wrote it. I mean, this cover, there's there's only ever been one chart cover of John and Money Dancing, and there's very few cover versions of the Bowie version, but there's covers of the cover. There's covers of the Polkettes version out there. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I always kind of wondered what it was about too, though he name-checked john lennon in another one of his songs so i was kind of wondered was it something to do with john lennon or but you never know. really I, figured it out huh maybe he didn't know you know he used to use the burroughs <laughs> cut up idea he used the carb lyrics so maybe it was just something random that came yeah yeah but well, he never gives a definitive answer <laughs> well that's the mystique right yeah so did you ever meet david bowie or did you hear if he so mentioned your did. cover I did did never I did not meet him. Um, I know at the time when the record came out, it was in the music papers that he went into Virgin Records and bought a copy of it. And I was always terrified to meet him. Think, oh God, I I love his music so much. I'd be devastated if he didn't like it. <laughs> Again, that's where the mystique comes in. Maybe yeah. it's better not to know. And then years later, we were recording with Tony Visconti, who was Bowie's producer, and apparently he was in the building when we were there. And I, you know, we would have definitely spoken to him. But it turns out that years later, this guy called Daryl Hyam, who's a friend of ours, was on TV. Daryl Hyam was Imelda May's guitar player. He was on TV with David Bowie. And uh, he couldn't think of anything to say to him because he didn't know anything about David Bowie's music. So he just said, uh, oh, did you know the Polecats did a cover of John Amoni Dancing? He said, yeah, of course I do. (laughs) And I love it. He said he he loved our version. Oh, that's great. And I heard that from, you know, like his second, you know, well, that's firsthand. So always felt great about that. Oh, that is fantastic. Yeah. I actually played with Bowie a couple of times and I don't know if he even mentioned it. Yeah. When he was playing with Morrissey, Bowie got up and did uh, Cosmic Dancer, the T-Rex song. And uh, so Boz has played with Bowie. But I don't know if he ever mentioned, oh, I covered your song. I think he was just doing his job. Yeah, well, let's, um, that kind of gives me a good opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about the other band members of the Polecats? Of course, Boz is one. Well, Boz, he was, me and him were the original two members. He came round to my house shortly after my 12th birthday and he said, are you the boy from our scout troop that plays guitar that's got one? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> and then he showed me all the stuff that he knew and all I showed him the stuff that I knew. And that was it. We we then recruited various people for the Polecats. Uh, the second guy we recruited was a guy called Phil, who's uh, still in the band. And we had a couple of different drummers. Um, Boz played with Morrissey for 30 years. And uh, actually, Phil's now playing with Mark Almond from Soft Cell. So we have, you know, they're, they're actually very talented. Both of those guys can read music. They're a, I'm more of an art school guy. 
they they actually the music guys yeah i mean well as i mentioned in the intro you do a lot of different things and we'll get into that but i am curious to know about you know having come up in london during the punk era it was such a short-lived um musical movement i feel like but it's a genre that we still talk about today so um in your opinion i'd like to know why you think it didn't last but it still is has a enduring legend well I think it did last because the people that started it are still around. But I think often the when I saw Blade Runner, you say I think it says in something like that, the flame that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. Well, that was a very bright flash. That was mm. a wake up call. So some of it you couldn't really follow that. But um, also, you know, some people that you know that start something don't necessarily reap the benefits. The people that smash the shop window don't do the looting. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You couldn't continue doing a three chord thrash. Uh, it had to develop. And lots of the bands that did start like that, like for instance, Susie and the Banshees, they're currently you know, very uh, in the, in the news because Susie just came out of retirement. Uh, they were a, a very abrasive punk rock band the first time I saw them. And then they totally branched off and started a new genre. I mean, they're pretty much single-handedly responsible for that goth movement. Hmm. So, and I think that, and then the clash became, a, you know, they actually became a stadium band. They were playing stadiums. So you can, you can't be a garage band forever. You either, you know, break up and, and, you know, live off the legend or do something else. Right. Also, there was something else waiting in the wings. Before before punk, there was an undercurrent of electronic music. I mean, there were bands like Craftwork and Suicide that were doing electronic music. And after punk, the, the cost of uh, of synthesizers came down and th- those people kind of made for, for the next generation. Like Gary Newman was originally in a punk band and one press of a synthesizer and he was doing something completely different. And I think that was the the next generation, the next British invasion was all electronic music. Um, in that time that you and I were growing up, it was really a lot harder to find out about our favorite bands. You know, I remember waiting for magazines to come out or, you know, That's... saving up the money to see them live. Um, but now we have YouTube and guys like Rick Beato and Phil from Wings of Pegasus decoding and analyzing everything. And I do love it. I watch those. Um, But I also feel like the mystique that I mentioned before is missing. So as a musician, I'm wondering how you feel about so much fan access and everybody knowing everything, social media. Do you feel like it's kind of a necessary evil? I mean, I know we can't put the genie back in the bottle, but I'd love to know your thoughts about that. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's why i asked you living in an embarrassment of riches i mean we we have this fragile technology that enables us to, to do anything i mean with an iphone you've now you have the capability that of recording something much more sophisticated than the beatles had for for abbey road and it's cheap and everyone has it but then the the uh playing field has been leveled and there's so many distractions People aren't coming up with Sergeant Peppers or Dark Side of the Moon on their phone, although it's possible. Mm. It's it's because the, the the inspiration's gone because you don't have to hunt for it. If you don't have to hunt for something, you don't really want it. You don't appreciate it. And I I do watch all those things on YouTube, and particularly I just watched something from the guy from Wings of Pegasus. I've never heard of his band, 
but I've seen it, seen him talking about other people's stuff. <laughs> right. But yeah. Today he talked. I looked at one where he's looking at shocking blue, and uh, he analysed it down to the down to the nth note. But what he didn't say was that song is a complete ripoff of a group Mama Cass was in. So you know the, you don't get the whole story from unless it's been deeply researched. And I think the uh, the uh, there's so much quantity of stuff on YouTube. It's not deeply researched. Not criticizing them. I I I wouldn't be bothered to do all the stuff that those guys do. You know, to, doing shows about guitar pedals every week. I mean, I just so much information that it just becomes maybe overwhelming and uninspiring in the end. It is every every Apple computer comes with GarageBand on it, and you're able to record. A, a band could just go out from the first day and record anything they want. But early pop records, all the great records were made on tape and they were usually made in a day, first take by four people standing in a room playing. And that's gone. We'll never really get that anymore. The, the, the temptation to use auto-tune and uh, you know metronome is just too enticing. It is gone, yes. I have um, interviewed other musicians on this show or just talked to friends who are musicians that talked about um, oh, it's so great to be able to record now. And he's in, you know, he's in another country and another band member is in another state. And then the producer is somewhere else. And isn't that great? But I feel like you don't, you're not going to have any like legends or stories. I think of say Fleetwood Mac or the Eagles, you know, to to kind of bring sort of California bands into it where they were in rooms together writing and recording and they had their fights and their love affairs and they had all this going on. I feel like with everyone being so isolated, even though you can bring music together electronically, you don't really have the personalities either clashing or meshing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And with it with pure electronic music, I also love pure electronic music, as I was mentioned, those guys like Gary Newman, Human League and Kraftwerk. I really like that music. But it was very, very hard to make. When that when when they were first doing it, it was hard to make. You had to know what you were doing and you had to have an original idea. Now, electronic music, you can basically let it go and AI itself and make itself. And mm. you can do it very quickly. You can have a track within 20 minutes. I just read uh, an interview with Delia Derbyshire who did the uh, the Doctor Who theme and it took 40 days to do the Doctor Who theme by cutting up tiny little bits of tape and hitting things and playing them backwards and experimenting 40 days and she knew what she was doing she was a mathematician but now you could just literally press a few key you can go and find a few loops press a few keys quantize it and it's done so but nothing good comes out of <laughs> it. I'm right. not hearing anything original, really, to speak of. I mean, there's some stuff, but nothing groundbreaking. Yeah, I feel like humans are, we were hardwired to be sort of hunter-gatherers, and, you know, we've, we've lost all that because we don't have to hunt for anything. I agree, but we're now we're just gatherers. We're not hunters. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. I gather stuff all day long looking at it, but it's... it's <laughs> Exactly. I haven't had to hunt for it. I haven't had to leave my room. I could go and look. If I want to find a rare new 45, I do like discovering old records. I do dig for old records. But just as easy to type in, show me a cool record. on. You know, find someone that's uh, had the same kind of tastes, go on their YouTube channel, look through their stuff. Oh, yeah, that's good. But I don't love it as much as having to wait in the rain for the record shop to open to make sure I get a copy of it, which I used to do all the time. 
also you know i have thousands and thousands and thousands of mp3s and a bunch of records now but when i only had 10 though i knew those ones inside out and still do you know i think it's uh you have to be a little more selective now we are we are spoiled now yeah well back when you could actually talk to people face to face and you did you got to know a lot of musicians um not just as colleagues but as friends so i'm wondering you know what to what do you attribute that quality in yourself have you always been outgoing and curious yeah i'm always curious (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that actually then you when you learn things from someone showing you something it's um it's a lot different from going on onto YouTube and having a stranger do it in front of you and show you when someone's actually in the room with you showing you how to play something, you remember it and it's a, and you cherish that thing and that's becomes part of your style. Right. That's an interpersonal one-to-one connection instead of one person looking out at the world through a screen. And absolutely. There was a great clip that, that, um, that, uh tv series pistol about steve jones's version of the sex pistols yes, uh-huh. yeah i know it got a lot of criticism from other members of the band but it, and that was from his point of view and there was one really good bit where chrissy hind or the actress playing chrissy hind is is showing him how to play something on the guitar and it that reminded oh yeah that's how you learn with someone pushing your fingers around and showing you and then you remember that but mm-hmm. great guitar teachers online but i'm never going to remember what what they play and and they don't always get it exactly there's people that claim they get stuff right they're the absolute authority on things and uh, i've been and checked my own stuff that i've written the lessons on it and they almost get it right but it's never exactly right but if the person that originally played it shows you then it's right that's different right um, well, who were some of the musicians that you got to know early on when you were learning to play and coming up? And did you have any mentors? Yeah, we really didn't have any mentors. We didn't know anyone that was old, older than us that were musicians that really helped us. Uh, not in the very beginning. The first guy that we knew that could play was uh, called Alan Warner. He was the guitarist in the Foundations who are now... They did Build Me Up a Buttercup and Baby Now That I Found You, two massive hits in the 60s. And he lived in Mill Hill and ran a recording studio at the bottom of his garden. (laughs) And that's where we recorded our first recording track at the bottom of Alan's garden. And he was a great, he probably was only eight, 10 years old than us, but he was a proper grown up that could really play. So yeah, he uh, he showed us a few things. And then when we went on tour with uh, Dave Edmonds' Rock Pile, uh, they showed us a bunch of stuff, particularly Nick Lowe was very, you know, kind of influential with us. But uh, as for no teaching us about the actual music, to be honest, they they were rock and roll guys, but they didn't know about the obscure American records that we knew about because we went to these clubs in London. that w- There was records being discovered by DJs in America that were 50s records that had never been heard. And uh, they'd come out on bootlegs in England and we'd have them. Or if we couldn't afford to buy them, we'd sneak to tape recorder underneath the uh, the table at clubs, waited for them to come on and recorded them. That's how we got a lot of our original repertoire. It wasn't really with records that we had. It's stuff that we recorded from discos. Didn't, though, a lot of American artists like um, Eddie Cochran or Jimi Hendrix, people like that, they had to go to London to be appreciated. Absolutely. And, and in fact... Uh, Eddie Cochran died in England, and I heard that Jimi Hendrix wanted to be buried in England. No one really liked Hendrix at first in um, 
in America. But when he toured with the Monkees, I think he got booed off. Yeah. Funny enough, you mentioned those two in the same breath. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was a big Eddie Cochran fan. Uh, it's come out in interviews. He loved Eddie Cochran and Elvis. Which oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, yeah, we didn't have any mentors as such, but there was people that we looked up to their recordings and uh, we didn't really know them because they were in America. Obviously, a lot of them were, had passed away by that time. As I mentioned, you're sort of an artistic omnivore. You do a lot of creative things aside from making music. Um but everything seems to stem from that base, whether it's your artwork or your photography and production design. Um, so I'd love to know, you know, since music is kind of the wellspring for it all, what does inspire you right now? Well, right now I've, I've kind of taken, I'm still recording. I record because of that thing that I was kind of slagging off a second ago, <laughs> the uh -huh. immediate availability of recording. I record a lot at home and I do, you know, I do do it on my own. So I've done, soundtrack stuff and we're still working on we're working on the polecats album oh nice so um but they're in england but, but we've always done that we've uh we've done stuff where we've been standing in the same room when we went adat machines all the way of recording we used we would record we could so we recorded a whole album um, by fedexing tapes to each other and we came up with stuff there was an interesting way to work because we came up with a couple of songs by accident and uh because we didn't know what was coming back. You know, we didn't know what each other was going to add. And there was a a couple of songs that got written that weren't supposed to be written. There was at the runoff of the tape. Boz actually recorded some stuff on the runoff that he forgot he'd recorded. Hmm. And I had a song out of them. So there was an interesting way of recording. It's not ideal, but it's another way of recording. So, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm record, recording that. I'm, I put the art directing and production design for other people kind of on the back burner. And it's a lot to do with the industry. A few years ago, I did a film with William Shatner, but it was here in Palm Springs. But nowadays, the uh, production design element has changed quite a little bit. Um, there's a lot of blue screen, a lot, lot less big sets being made. And that was kind of my uh, my style was making massive sets. But yeah, I've been doing other arts and crafts projects i've been customizing guitars and repairing all my old ones which were, which actually was quite interesting i started doing that after doing the uh the uh, documentary for you when i was talking about guitars actually it reminded me that i had bits of ones lying around so i started doing that oh nice yeah yeah you have so much equipment it's just um and so many little things in the documentary if, for those who haven't seen it yet um you sh demonstrated uh was it the reverb the reverb and the zero fret on the guitar. Yes. <laughs> no one else thought of showing the inside of a reverb unit, and I guess they didn't <laughs> have a broken one. Oh, that was perfect. But I had that because I've been bringing old amps over from England, ones that are cheap now, but will be the next Emperor's New Clothes. So I bring them over in bits, and I've been repair. I've I have quite a few guitars, and I've I've taken this time to come to bring them all up to spec, and I've had a the, the particular one I'm doing right now is a. Uh, is the Gretsch I use on stage in England. It was a cheaper one that I accidentally, I shouldn't really say, but I accidentally snapped it in half. I knocked the head off during during a very violent set. All those old clips of The Who make me create. I have to look yeah. away. <laughs> I never do it on purpose. It actually fell over one too many times and the head snapped off and it has a locking nut on, so I was still able to use the um, the guitar with the head flapping around. And it was like playing with a broken arm. You know, people... My goodness. So I've repaired that and I've I've started using the like because 
live in Southern California, I've been using a lot of the kind of stuff that's in the air. So I've been doing custom paint jobs, like custom cars. I've done that one full 1960s metal flake. Wow, that's really cool. So how do you do that? And you have like a garage. I mean, I imagine paint is kind of toxic or how does that work? It's very toxic. So um, I wear a whole hazmat suit and I do it outside in a tent. I don't even do it anywhere near the, the house. For some reason in California, you can still get the um, nitrocellulose paints that are uh, illegal elsewhere in the world. And um, so, yeah, metal flake is like the hot rod thing. So instead of just doing a little bit of the guitar, I did the whole thing. And that will be coming out soon. And I've prepared a few things for other people. I have a friend that lives around the corner that's a full-on Luther that has a, a CNC machine that makes... Uh, computer prints guitars basically so i've been working with him on a couple of things well i sell vintage stuff so i've restored a couple of things i've restored a hagstrom viking and like the one elvis used and i've worked on a couple of uh double bass i'm working on a couple of double bass projects i won't say that this type with the tech thing i one thing i did invent was the double way to amplify stand-up basses for rockabilly that's the hardly ever mentioned that but since you're yeah, what about, is that so when when we first started using the double bass, no one else was really using them. So we didn't know how to amplify it. And the records that we heard had that clicking sound, the slap. And mm-hmm. if you put a pickup on a bass, that doesn't come through. Or if you put a mic in front, you only get the click. So we figured out, or I figured out, that if you put a separate pickup on the bass notes and then put a contact mic on the back of the neck and feed them through two different amps, you could get that clacking sound and the booming real deep sound at the same time and when we when we first went out with that was a game changer because they're literally the only band in the world that had that for about a month until (laughs) right until everyone else saw it that's a good idea quite well documented that the various people came to our shows went home and literally did it that that's that that's what what being an influencer is actually influencing people <laughs> right and now every single double bass used for it, that kind of music has that on it i never really bragged about it but i'm doing i'm putting it for the record now <laughs> i think that's very cool so um i want to know like what's one of the most challenging customizations that you've done whether it's on one of your own guitars or someone else's actually yeah the the, the full over metal flag that probably was it and um the Hagstrom, I, I restored a Hagstrom that was in, it had been in the storage unit and it was in complete pieces and all the binding was off. And I'd never tried to do it. And I, to, I have to admit, once again, I went to YouTube to see how to do it. I mean, Wait a minute, I can do that. And I, I did. That was pretty hard to do though. But I haven't haven't repaired too much stuff for other people just because I'm kind of busy. And, you know, that's, it takes a while. Sometimes things hang up gluing for ages and ages. You have to wait for or layers of paint need to dry for weeks on end and patience is uh, quite short. So I tend not to do that. Yeah. And what about, you know, I know you live in Palm Springs now, so does the climate affect your workflow? Like when it's a hundred and however many degrees, actually, 120 that, in the summer? actually quite, quite good. I do, um, I make reproduction fifties chalkware and I, I use the outside as a kiln to fire it. <laughs> it literally dries immediately the only hazard is here the the wind when we get high wind it's very hard to paint in high wind and i never do that stuff inside. oh right and dust and dirt and stuff i'm sure 
Um, well, I would love to talk a little bit more about production design. I know you've done films, but also a lot of high profile music videos and worked with everyone from Alice Cooper to Vanessa Williams and Dwight Yoakam to Alice in Chains. Talk about a diversity there. And then you even did production design on Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back, which I had to revisit. I was like, I haven't seen this video in a long time. So did you create that booty summit that he's standing on? I did actually. Uh, yeah, I used um, the Planet of the Apes technology to do, to do that. <laughs> it. Was, it's, it was done with, it literally was done the same way that they built Ape City. And I, I used to do this a lot for the jobs that I production design, basically because I knew how to do it. And a lot of people didn't, re a lot of other people that were production designers, art directors really didn't know how to make massive dimensional things. So it's done with foam and steel, uh, pencil steel. So, yes, I made that huge booty. Which sadly they <laughs> That's cut. your claim to fame, Tim. Yeah, they cut they cut it. To, they made me cut it to pieces. I wanted to keep I wanted to donate it because you could go inside. It was like two igloos. Oh, wow. I've actually just did the same technique for a funny car for the William Shatner film that we shot out here. And I got to keep it. So that's the roof of a tiki hut in the back garden now. I've got to keep that. Oh, I, did, nice. I did a lot of very, I actually did 200, almost, I think yeah, 200 big music videos in the 90s so i did do a lot of it and i did it under my actual i didn't do it under tim polka i never used that at all it was my real name tim warman which is you know a separate thing on imdb a lot of diverse artists because you know i didn't get to choose the the people i worked with i got hired and you know, i didn't think oh i don't like that band very much i, I won't do it because it was all about the idea and, and getting the job to be honest well, did you work closely with the directors or how did that work? Like, did yeah. the bands have input? You kind of, it's all a like no. creative collaboration or what? There's no collaboration with the bands. They never have <laughs> no. any idea what they're going to do for the video. Unless there's someone like David Barr who gives storyboards and have who are involved with their own videos. They don't have any clue what they're going to do. And uh, what would happen generally is the I'd work with a director and I'd be on a run with it. I'd work for a director. I'd do everything that they would do for six months to a year. Sometimes I'd just do it. It'd be job after job after job. And they'd say, Oh, we've got a, a chance to do a video for so-and-so. Uh, how about doing this? And you'd, I'd throw ideas backwards and forwards and they, uh, they would try and sell them on one of their ideas that they'd had, <laughs> or they'd come to me and say, is it possible to do this or that? And I'll say, yeah. And then the next thing they'd be writing a treatment and giving it to whoever the band was. And sometimes it would get accepted and sometimes it wouldn't. For one of the Ozzy Osbourne ones, No More Tears, I remember specifically that um, I showed the director, Ralph, this uh, film, The Girl Can't Help It. There's a clip with Julie London where she's fading in and out. And he said, there's a motion control camera where you can do that with the camera moving. I'm going to try and sell someone on it. And he, the next video we did for, for uh, Ozzy Osbourne had it in it. So, yeah, it would be a there'd be a lot of exchange of ideas, but hardly ever with the artist. To be honest, they, they, they'd get given treatments. And if they liked one, they'd say, oh, yeah, let's do that. Despite what you'd hear, I actually saw an interview with Vanessa Williams on on the um the BET channel and she was talking about how the ideas for her videos and I did three or four of them and to be honest she had no idea what was going to happen with them like a script but you know they're paying the money so whatever and was there anything in particular that you fabricated that you're especially proud of or something that stands out 
besides the huge arse. Yeah, uh, I know. It's, it's of, very difficult to top that. Um, actually, that was quite simple. That was easy to do. That, uh, um, I just I made a model of that and uh, drew lines around it. And I had a bunch of guys who just constructed it out of steel in front of me and then other guys that covered it in foam while I watched. But um, some jobs were extremely complex. Hey Stupid for Alice Cooper had motion control, miniatures, pyrotechnics, animals, uh, blue screen. It had every everything that's possibly to do in the art department was in one video. And I had a lot of hands-on stuff. I had two crews working, although I didn't actually... I do I do the initial drawings myself and then I have other people carry it out because there's usually like 20 or 30 people working for me when we do those big ones. So that was pretty challenging. And also the uh, the No More Tears video for um, Ozzy Osbourne, the whole set had to go underwater, which was uh, very, very hard to do indeed. Yeah, not... I'll bet. Um, now, were you on set while some of the videos were being shot? I'm thinking like if the something yeah. broke or you had Every to kind of be there. Every single video I was there all of the time supervising, particularly particularly that one. That was very there was a lot of ones where it was very dangerous. And yeah, I had a crew that worked for me. I had to stand there and be in charge of it. The the uh, Ozzy Osbourne one where the set went underwater, they didn't know how, they wanted it in the in the uh, video, but they didn't know how to do it. I had to figure out how to do it and uh, to fill a room with water in a short, short amount of time is very dirty of me you kill someone so i had to actually build a set that would go into an existing body of water so we uh, found a huge tank and i built a set inside a steel cage and we found a crane and we lowered the set into the water and so i was in that in a scuba gear <laughs> it's wow, in the documentary how did you go from being a musician originally? I mean, that was your originally chosen vocation into production design. Well, I went to art school for a year. So I went to art school for a year and had to leave because I got a record deal. But that, that was when I was 16. But I already knew how to do. You know, I'd watch films when I was a kid and figure out how they did stuff. And I already knew how to draw and paint. So that was a little bit of a head start. And then when I moved to America, I had to find a job and I ended up, a friend of ours worked in the art department. And so I worked for one day as a, a schlepper and then I, they figured out I could paint. And then I figured out oh, I could do this. And then within six months, I'd moved myself quickly to the head of department just because there was lots of people. It's a very much the way in Hollywood people say they can do things and then figure it out. Well, I already knew how to do the stuff. So when I could pull stuff off, I guess, uh, I moved my way up quite quickly and I and I knew a few people, but it wasn't really through nepotism. It was through actually being on set and, uh, and just, just doing the work really. But well, the, the two things walk hand in hand. I mean, to me, visual sound and vision, they, they're they all part of the same thing. Do you feel like they all kind of did the, did these different things that you do kind of all wind up in the same um, pot, <laughs> you know, where it's like you get satisfaction from all the different things that you do. Yeah, of course. It's great fun. And seeing things and then doing something and then seeing it on TV very soon after, it was, it was amazing. But the, I actually have to interject, there was a couple of artists that did have input in um, in the video. One of them was Lindsay Buckingham. I did a video for Lindsay Buckingham. To be honest, 
my knowledge of Fleetwood Mac until that was the song Albatross. I didn't know anything about them. And they said, do you fancy working for Lindsay Buckingham? I said, I don't know who she is. right yeah i mean Fleetwood Mac had started off as a british blues band and then they became sort of the quintessential california band through Lindsay and stevie absolutely of course i know that now but yeah so so they said no he's the guy from fleetwood mac he's doing a solo album and he wants to direct a video and he needs someone you know to do the audrey all right and i thought i was kind of dreading it but when i met him he was really nice he was really nice, really smart, very creative, and very, very, uh, very helpful. He was a super nice guy, and uh, we filmed at his house. and And he was, uh, yeah, he, he was just he had all the ideas. He actually had the ideas and said, "Can you do this?" And I did it, and that was it. He was one of the few artists that that you know really had an input. And then I did worked with other directors. I actually worked with Adamant when he was directing someone else's video, I think it was information society. And he, you know, had storyboard, he had everything mapped out in his head. It was all storyboarded and written down. So yeah, there are people that do that, but generally, you know, the bands, they would be too busy to do, to figure out how to do the video. Well, what about your band's videos? Oh yeah, I tried <laughs> in the beginning. So, so when we made our videos, it was in the early '80s, where they'd spend a couple of thousand pounds on it. But by the time I was in the '90s, they'd spend hundreds of thousands of pounds. Wow! What so, a jump. Also, I was a kid. Yeah, you know, I, I was seventeen. So I'd go into the meeting with the director, and I'd say, "It'd be really good to do this, this, and this." And they go, "Yeah, yeah." And then I'd turn up on the day, and it wouldn't. But they couldn't afford any of the things I wanted to do. They just were just wanted to get the job and we didn't we didn't really work the videos weren't as sophisticated when we were doing those they were really just little promotional films that they maybe would show on tv there was there was only one that was on mtv and that one we were told it was very expensive but i believe it was about six thousand pounds so it wasn't that was that make a circuit with me yeah and i remember going to the, the director and i had all these ideas yeah that's a really good idea and then we got there it was so different from what we discussed and i i totally understand it what i wanted was to was would be totally unaffordable and unable to shoot in one day because we were shooting on film in though that i had to add when i was working on music videos they weren't on video they were film so it was making small films it was a completely different process to now well i'm going to wind up here with my favorite question what is your rock and roll nightmare i have two <laughs> I have two because I've lived the two lives. One, yes. one is the as a performer, as a performer, our nightmare with the polecats is when we did John Amoni dancing, we did a gig in Scotland and the audience did not, we had a very backward audience in that rock and roll scene and they did not like us doing a David Bowie cover. They did not like us and they threw things at us, spat at us, death threats. And that was before we played the song. We oh, dared us to play the song. We played it and they were throwing stuff, screaming at us, and then we played it again. That was a nightmare. I was actually terrified. We went back to the hotel and the guy from the hotel said, the, there's some people from the audience have come to the hotel. Or who? Well, all of them. Although they've come to kill us. And actually they come to say sorry. So ended up... Really? 
they, they changed their mind. They did a, a turnabout. Maybe it's because we played it twice. I don't know. But according to some people that were there, we won them over. But I, I, I don't know. It's a little bit of a blur because I would, to be honest, I was quite scared. So that was that was a bit of a nightmare. The second nightmare is uh, is uh, when I worked on that second Alice in Chains video. It's called "What the Hell Have I?" Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it was a it was a video where they wanted these sixteen foot effigies of Satan, a dominatrix, and a bunch of other iconic masks, and they were sixteen feet high. So I made them, and they said, "Oh, by the way, we have to film it in Seattle." So I had to get these masks to Seattle. <laughs> So I had the guy, two guys drive. One guy is the is a guy called John Requa who wrote the film Cats and Dogs and uh, Bad Santa, and the other guy is called Jamie Kennedy who who've got his own TV show, The Jamie Kennedy Experience. Yes, so I remember that. Those two guys used to work for me, and they drove trucks overnight to Seattle to film this with Satan on the back. And when we got to the location, it was in a brewery and they wouldn't go through the door. So we had to knock the wall down, up the set, and then uh, the lead singer didn't show up. <laughs> That's, oh, my gosh. Just when you think things can't he, get worse. We did later. But, you know, there was many things, in it, but that was a nightmare. Moving huge Satans to Seattle was a bit of a nightmare. Wow. Yeah. And there's many <laughs> more. But, you know, the, those are the ones that sprung to mind. Yeah, well, I'm sure you have a lot of stories, and I'm hoping one day you'll write a memoir or do a documentary on yourself. But for now, what is coming up next for you, and what is the best place for fans to find and follow you online? Well, I'm always out doing shows, and uh, that COVID thing put a little bit of a block on it, but it's picking up slightly after a couple of years. The best place to find me is honestly on Instagram. I don't have any uh, imitators on Instagram. I had a few on Facebook. So, oh, okay. But Tim Polka on Instagram. People can message me. I'm quite accessible and quite chatty. <laughs> 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 and I'll put up there when we're doing anything of any consequence, it goes up on Instagram. Okay. And then you mentioned that you have an album that you have in the works or what? Is that what's next? We do. We've uh, just recorded the main song for it, Crepe Soul, which is a, it's it's a kind kind of that's a new song, and then we've re, we've recorded some songs we forgot to record in the eighties. So I'm not oh, sure when it's going to be finished. We've finished recording it. It just needs to be mixed, and then we need to find somewhere to press it on vinyl because everyone wants vinyl now. So. Oh yeah, it's come back around. Absolutely, and uh, I mean I, I've actually. I must admit, I've been out and bought vinyl just because it's just nice to have. Yeah, you know, I've got addicted to it again a little bit. <laughs> but wow. hopefully, other people are. But the last um, every every release of the podcast has come out on vinyl now. So that's brilliant. Do you design your album covers too? I mean, you do I, everything, Tim. I do do that. Yeah, <laughs> I do that now. When I was actually at the record company, they told me I wasn't allowed to because I didn't have a union number. It turned out they were just lying. Uh, so uh, I do design, I do the finished artwork for all of the stuff since the 90s. So, Wow. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see and hear the new one. And I uh, can't thank you enough for being on the show. It's long overdue. Absolutely my pleasure. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. 
That's R-O-C-K dash N dash R-O-L-L dash nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>